Hey friends, and welcome back to the Values and Vino podcast. I've got my friend Omar Saeed on this episode. He is the CEO of Ties.com, a high quality menswear e-commerce company, which has been around for more than 20 years. I would say this is probably the least fascinating part about him. What stands out about Omar is that he's just a good person with a big heart. He's also a transplant from Afghanistan as his family fled the country in the 80s for a safer life. Given all of the current, not so current events, I needed to have him back on the show as he has taken it upon himself to be very outspoken about the recent Kabul takeover by the Taliban. We have an incredibly educational conversation about the U.S.'s role in the last 20 years and some of the things we've gotten wrong that they aren't really talking about in major media. I would definitely stay tuned until the end as we lighten up the conversation to reflect on a topic we covered having lunch years ago and how it changed my perspective in dating of all things. For all the singles or soon-to-be singles, you don't want to miss this. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. This is the Values in Vino podcast where we believe that shared values bring people together and values misalignment can keep people apart from one another, including themselves. So we'll be here discussing what values are, how people can discover their values, and how we all can live within those values personally and professionally. Did I mention there may be some wine drinking? If you love values or wine as much as we do, don't forget to subscribe or leave us a review. Without further ado, enjoy this episode of the Values and Vino podcast. Hey, Omar. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back. Technically, this is your third time with me. Uh, thank you for having me back for the third time. It's an absolute honor. Yeah, three strikes and you're out, though, by the oh, way. Oh, goodness. I was going to say third time's <laughs> a charm. <laughs> Um, I just, you know, I want our listeners to know you're, we're in a different time zone. Yes. What time is it where you are? Uh, good question. It is, uh, 8.15 in the, PM. the evening. Yes. Okay. And you are where? I'm in the Netherlands. Okay. So, I mean, what is the difference between the Netherlands, Holland, and Dutch, just out of, I just like, it's, is it all the same place? It, it is all the same place. So uh, the people from the Netherlands uh, are referred to as the Dutch. Uh, mm. Holland was an old name that was given to the people of Netherlands, but Nederlanders, uh, or the Dutch people would uh, like to call themselves uh, the people from the Netherlands. So officially it's the Netherlands. Got it. We, um, when I was coming back from Italy, we flew KLM, which yeah. was the first time I actually flew that airline. Um, and I saw it was like Royal 
Dutch Airlines. Yeah. And I was just confused because I didn't understand. I was like, is it Netherlands? Is it Dutch? Is it yeah, Holland? No. Yeah, so yeah. technically the country still has is a monarchy. So uh, the country still has a king and queen and Oh, see, I didn't know that. By yeah. the way, great customer service on KLM. Yeah, there's uh, if you, uh, it's it's a really wonderful airlines. I fly it all the time. Just you know, it's a uh, awesome nonstop flight daily back and forth LA to Amsterdam. Great people. I, great I gotta service. go back because that was the first time I was in Amsterdam Airport, and I was blown away. It's one of the largest um, airports in, uh, in Europe. It's huge. Mm-hmm. I like we walked a lot to get to our connecting flight, yeah. but I, I want to go back. So especially because I want to come see you. Please do. Please it's do. been like two years. When's yes. the last time I saw you? Uh, right before I left. Right it was like November 2019. You came out to the office. We went out to lunch and then, yeah, I was, I it was November 2019. That's right. Yeah. And yeah. we had, which we'll get to, we had like a very insightful conversation. We did. We did. That uh, actually cha- changed the trajectory of like how I approached dating after that. Happy to hear that. Hey, uh, just off, off topic, I will be in town in two weeks. So I'll send you my calendar. Um, yeah, we're, we gotta, we're, we're for sure going to get together. Yeah. Um, so let's get to the part which is like why everybody is listening. Um, what wine are we featuring today? So you had sent me a wine to pick up here. By the way, I appreciate you uh, trying to get a wine out to me with customs. It's always a nightmare. Um, so this is a uh, Catina Alta. Um, it's from the same region. It's from Malbec. Uh, it is not exactly that wine that you had requested because they only sold it online and I was at the store. So they sold me something from that vineyard from that time frame. It's just same thing, but only a little bit lighter. Got it. Let's open it say. up. Let's see what. What are you drinking? So I cheated. Oh no. Um, because I couldn't find that wine uh-huh. here. <laughs> okay. So I actually already had an open bottle, um, but I. It's actually it's a it's a bottle that's not for sale yet. I think maybe he's gonna work on on doing something like that over the next year, but it's actually from um, Rich's private family reserve. Oh. Yeah. Nice. Montana? Is that what it says? Montana. Yeah. Oh. Montana private family reserve. It's a 2015 Cab Sauv. Where's the, where's the vineyard? It's in Escondido. So oh. San Diego. San Diego. Yeah. Okay. Very nice. Um, so I already had an open bottle of it, so I'll, I'm just going to have it here with me. Okay. Now, are we, what's the protocol here? Are we expected to, to drink? Uh... I want you to taste it and tell me what it, what it tastes like. Yeah, I'm just trying to uh, get the ground rules. Are we drinking the whole thing? No, you don't have to drink. I mean, you can. So listen, here's, here's the dilemma that we're in. Um, it's 8 p.m. there and it's 11 a.m. here. So yeah, well, I have like three calls after, after this recording. <laughs> Fair enough. So just a heads up to everybody who has to take my call, which is like, um, a startup lawyer, my coach, actually, if I'm, if I sound a little slurred, bear with me. Ooh, that's, yeah. that just sounds nice. Doesn't it? It's a nice yeah. color. Yeah. Where's yours? So, so cheers. Cheers. Bing. Ding. Okay. Mm. 
Oh, I like this. This is just like, it's just like full bodied. How's yeah. yours? I like it. It's nice. It's, uh, it's not, um, it's not fruity. It's good. I like it. We'll, we'll, we'll have, we'll take, have you take sips toward the end of the show too, to see how it opened up. And then I will make sure to link that bottle on the show notes so people can go purchase it. Yeah, as well. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. It's good. All right. So let's get into the show. Um, Omar, you and I met, oof, we're probably going on, what, three years, I would say? No, and uh, four years at least. Four years. Up- and we in- instantly connected. Absolutely. Um, um, you, you know, ties was a client of ours for a while, but we've always maintained a friendship throughout the years. Um, and so obviously you identify as Afghani. That's where your family is from. And given the current events, although not current, I would say the current media coverage of, of the events, um, I reach out to you immediately because I am not like a foreign policy expert. Um, I'm not a war expert. I don't know enough to have an opinion about it. And so I was really number one, just looking to see how um, I can support you in your fight of bringing awareness. But also I wanted, I wanted to learn more about what was really happening. And I felt like we couldn't do that over text message and I really wanted to bring you on because I feel that there are a lot of people out there who have a lot of questions about it um and I think that that the information you provide is going to be really helpful and so just to provide context to everybody um you've been very active on social media and increasing awareness I always laugh at your your um food posts because I know why you're posting the food posts <laughs> and they're so funny to me um because it's so not you it's like out of character for you to post them um but when we first met you were I would say like really into influencing on social media you had your very catchy Omarisms, and I know you would have success tips and and you were just trying to find ways to motivate um, your audience. And now we've kind of seen a shift in that. You actually stopped completely for a while. You weren't posting anything, um, especially when Tara was pregnant. I noticed that you kind of went completely off and you were really focusing on, on her and your family, which is very admirable. Um, but now that you've kind of reemerged uh, I've noticed you know you are very focused on bringing awareness to events that have been happening in other countries so like where were you in in your life like personally number one that that you ramped down your social media and then kind of ramped back up and and switched or you pivoted um, what your goal was on your social media yeah um a lot, a lot to unpack there. Um, I guess like I'll start off with sort of like why I went on a hiatus. And as you mentioned, you know, my wife, um, Tara had gotten pregnant. And so towards the end of like her pregnancy, um, I came out to Europe or we rather came out to Europe and we decided to, that we were going to have our child in Europe. Um, and that wasn't like for any strategic reasons other than sort of, we have more family here, her side of the family is a little bit more sort of concentrated in one area. It made more sense to do it here as opposed to where my family is. 
Uh, my immediate family, my mom and dad, are, are in a different state, and so it just made a little bit more sense. And then we came here, we got kind of like locked out. And the early days, honestly, I was really enjoying um, uh, the baby and, you know, sort of like the time off of social media and, you know, anybody who's active on social media, you know, you everybody sort of admits um, and realizes how sort of a burdensome it can be. Um, but only the few who have taken an active step into stepping away from it can really understand the sort of toll it does take versus just focusing on things outside of it. Because you do have a fear of FOMO for the first couple of weeks uh, when you're doing it. So really it was because of the family, as you mentioned. Um, and then uh, as the pandemic was rolling around and to give everybody sort of contextually where the timeline is. So we had our uh, uh, daughter right before the pandemic. And I'm talking about like a few days before the sort of uh, when everything went to haywire. In fact, I was supposed to fly out to the Philippines and officiate the wedding of a really good friend of ours. And I couldn't, couldn't make that trip. Um, so, um, and as the pandemic was happening, you know, I, I will say this, uh, you know, there's a, there's a um, artist that I follow by the name of Derek Pope. And he had said something that has always resonated with me. He says, uh, when he's depressed, he doesn't write music because it do, he doesn't want it to come through to his, through his music and he doesn't want to depress his audience and his fans. And, you know, I will say like the pandemic, while on the one hand, it was just sort of like a rewarding experience and that I got to stay at home and really, you know, extend my paternity leave and, you know, got to spend a lot of time with the family. But I think there's also this like underlying, you know, uh, loss of like not being able to see your friends, not, you know, being cooped up and, you know, like being a little bit worried about the company and all that stuff. And I honestly didn't have anything motivating to say. And I felt instead of being like contrived and pushing something through that wasn't necessarily true, I felt like, okay, well, this is probably a uh, another reason for me to stay offline for a little while and just sort of observe. And I think I was just sharing memes for a long time because in the very beginning, it was a lot of fun to just share memes. Um, so yeah, I went on a, on a, on a hiatus um, to answer your second part of it. Um, uh, yeah, it sort of morphed into as uh, the sort of uh, extraction of the U.S. forces in Afghanistan was happening more recently. Um, and with everything that has happened ever since, um, it's been a triggering event for, for, for a lot of the Afghan diaspora and especially those are, who are on my age, you know, people who are, um, uh, you know, older millennials, um, I would say even like some, um, uh, younger Gen Xers and certainly, um, uh, younger millennials who have. Uh, left the country around the same time as I did, you know, sort of like in the 80s. Um, you know, we were part of what was considered the official brain drain of Afghanistan. So uh, when those people left. And so for a lot of us, we experienced some of the things we're witnessing on TV. So there was this visceral reaction towards what was happening really on TV. Um, just watching images of people clamoring onto a plane or rather like running to uh, and, and inside of airports, so that in, in itself was a was a was a visceral experience. But then you know now the diaspora is educated. You know we have resources, and so you know um, and also contextually and politically you understand a lot more than you did when you were like you know five, six, seven, eight, ten years old. Um, and so I think it was I, I felt it was important for me to provide at least for the people who follow me, and I have a very small platform. 
But it was important for me to give that sort of like voice and um, contextualize things, contextualize things for, for people who otherwise just get filtered news, you know, between CNN and Fox. And uh, I have my own opinions about those news outlets. And it was important for them to hear sort of what really is the truth and what's happening in Afghanistan um, in terms of like political motivations for us to be there, the, the financial motivations for us to be there, what really happened to the two trillion dollars that was spent over there, um, the real reasons why we were there. Um, and, you know, sort of like similar, similar outcomes of what was, the, or, and some similar reasons why we were in Iraq and, you know, and some of the other countries, it's very, very similar stories. But what was interesting about Afghanistan, not that it's unique, unfortunately, but what is interesting um, in Afghanistan is that it's been happening for the past 45 years. Um, and sort of like, even just sort of like in modernity speaking. So that's why I think to, um, to sort of like sum this up is the reason why I jumped back on social media. And that's been the sort of new direction for me personally. Your family came to the U.S. from Afghanistan. Having exposure to both the Afghani people and being raised in the U.S., what do you feel are the biggest misconceptions you're experiencing with people in the U.S. right now? Oh, about the people of Afghanistan. Oh, I mean, there's so many. Uh, where do we start? Um, you know, and also, I when when we left, Afghanistan was drastically different type of a place. Sure, um, the civil war had just ensued and. Um, but Afghanistan was very, very different from the experience that my parents had versus what it is today. And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions is sort of what people are exposed to today. The Afghanistan that they see on TV was not the Afghanistan that my parents sort of built. Um, you know, both my parents are highly educated. They were well connected. They had, um, you know, great jobs or professionals and um, they contributed to that society. They were part of the revolution. They wanted sort of you know, equal rights for women and, and all that stuff. And during the 60s, 70s, 80s, Afghanistan was in its heyday. So sort of the biggest misconception, I think, for a lot of uh, the countries in Asia that are currently in turmoil, but also in the Middle East are currently in, ter in ter turmoil, there was a different version of those countries. They were, you know, they had their own manifest destiny. They had, you know, they were sovereign nations with their own goals and um, educational attainment goals, they're, um, you know, building their civil engineering. They're, they're, Afghanistan I, was a drastically different place. That's number one. Um, number two, um, I think what people really fail to understand is that Afghanistan did have an infrastructure, um, and not just for education, but certainly for other other uh, sort of areas of, of, of life. Um, a great educational institution, sure, it didn't, you know, uh, measure up to the West by any means, um, but that's not the point, right? They had, again, their own manifest um, destiny, um, their own sovereignty, and all of that was trampled just because, you know, uh, the former USSR and America decided that they were going to hold a proxy war in a country that didn't have any say um, in, in, the, in the process. Mm -hmm. I mean, the situation over there is so complex and has so many layers I mean, can you give our audience a dummy explanation of what's been happening over the last 20 years what's happened recently and what should be done from your perspective sure. yeah so let's focus on um you know the, of course afghanistan 
um, has some sectarianism and it's important to sort of like note that. And again, this is primarily predicated on the sort of notions that when Great Britain tried to conquer it uh, uh, twice, when they left, they left it sort of in, in, in a mess in the way the sort of border lines were drawn, which I think Afghanistan is one of the reasons why it still continues to have uh, border disputes with, with Pakistan. Um, but sort of excluding the historical context, which is very, very important, and I don't want to discount it, um, of, of the of the English um, Empire or the uh, uh, the Great Britain um, that was over there. I don't want to discount that by any means because I think that is a contributing factor. Um, but I think sort of like in modernity, um, Russia went in there in the 70s tried to bring about sort of the uh, revolution of, of communism. And, um, and of course, you know, like uh, any sort of uh, most educated people in Afghanistan accepted that as, um, as, as, as a great ideal. I don't necessarily um, know, because I wasn't there, obviously, but having spoken to my parents and my in-laws and uncles and aunts who are, again, all educated, um, I think it's, it's, there's a misconception to say, well, they wanted the revolution um, uh, and, and ex except, ex expected it to go sort of like smoothly. Um, there's, of course, uh, a conservative element in Afghanistan even back then. Not religious conservative, just cultural, cultural um, conservatism in Afghanistan where, you know, they just didn't want that kind of revolution. And they thought, and it's sort of the same thing that's happening currently in America. You know, you have a conservative party that doesn't believe in, you know, a lot of things that um, the West Coast liberals do. And there's a difference. And those people lived amongst each other just fine. And, you know, and that was fine. But I think the problem was that... Um, Afghanistan, because of its mountains, uh, provides a really great strategic military sort of base, and America wanted to, wanted to secure that as a base, being so close to the former USSR. And of course, the USSR didn't want to give it up, because um, for them it was a um, strategic point for them to hold Afghanistan. Um, so the 80s really was a proxy war over sort of land and territory. Um, and But in the 90s and 2000s, that focus completely shifted uh, to resources. Then it became a battle for resources. And it was a battle between, you know, you have uh, a lot of countries that are sort of trying to clamor for um, cobalt that's in Afghanistan, lithium, um, uh, and other minerals like copper that are just very, very abundant. Uh, in fact, this, um, the Pentagon had released a paper, an opinion piece that said that you know, they were, Afghanistan was poised. And this was in the mid-2000s. They said that Afghanistan was uh, poised to become the next Saudi Arabia of, of oil uh, with lithium. So it, um, I think there was just a general understanding of knowing that Afghanistan itself didn't have the resources uh, to be able to, in any, in any meaningful way, to extract these, these minerals from, from, from its mountains and from the ground. Um, so it's lately it's just become a battle for that. And coincidentally... Um, what also we shouldn't forget is that Afghanistan was, like a lot of developing countries, um, you know, falls to um, the wrong types of hands when there's lack of governance and there's plenty of laws. But if nobody is uh, promoting the laws or nobody's pushing them, then, you know, it doesn't mean anything. Um, but there were poppy fields in, in, in Afghanistan. And I'll have to look up the figures exactly if anybody's interested. They can go on my social media. They can go on my Instagram. And I've talked about this. But Afghanistan had one 
fifth of the poppy fields um, that, you know, opium sort of is grown from. And that's where a lot of the opioid pandemic that's happening in America, that's where it really stems from. But right after uh, the sort of liberation, quote unquote, if for those who are listening, I'm doing the bunny years. Um, but the sort of the liberation movement um, in Afghanistan that started uh, with with uh, the invasion uh, under Bush, um, uh, those poppy fields grew, you know, 5x, 6x. Um, and coincidentally, the number of deaths in America over the corresponding 20 years have increased because of the opioid uh, pandemic. And nobody really sort of, this information is out there, but um, which leads me to a greater idea that we should probably at some point talk about this idea of, of, of um, information being out there, um, so much information being out there. But, you know, so the information is out there. You know that poppy fields, with the help of sort of like their, the influx of cash that was going into Afghanistan, increased it. But Afghanistan has, what, like 40 million people? They're not going to wear those poppy fields uh uh, why are they being produced? Where is that going? I can tell you that opium uh, consumption in Afghanistan is, you know, marginal, marginal in comparison to what's happening in the West and in, 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 uh, particularly in, in America. Um, so, yeah, so those two factors, I think, uh, or three factors, rather, uh, the sort of start of the proxy war um, with Russia and uh, followed by, you know, the sort of uh, liberation of resources is as I like to call it, and then coupled with um, big farmer really being interested in cheap farming and sort of uh, doing the kind of farming that's practically impossible to do in the West now. Uh, and here you have, and today you have Afghanistan that's completely overrun by, um, you know, I think United Nations just called Afghanistan the worst nation for any child to live at, which just blows my mind. Mm -hmm. Absolutely blows my mind. Um, I mean, you have like, you know, children literally dying in Lebanon at, at this current moment of hunger. But Afghanistan has earned that title of the worst place uh, to live for children. So, yeah, I think I think um, I think it was important for me to participate in this conversation and, and have a voice in this narrative. So just to talk about some milestones over the last 20 years. So obviously 9-11 happens. We put troops in Afghanistan. You're saying we have troops there because of the desire to have, because they're, they have mountains surrounding them, the desire to have this very um, good base, you know, for our, for our troops. So we're there, but the media is saying we're there because we want to help these people and we want to make their country better and, you know, impose, you know, some Western beliefs on them. So so we're there. And obviously there are there are people who have died and people who have fought their lives from the U.S. I never want to ever discount um, the men and women that have given their time and their lives to being over there. Um And and then recently now we pull out and then Kabul is taking over. So you're seeing that this has to do with like the resources that are there. Uh, look, I, I will I will argue anybody on this point and I will die on this hill. I, I don't mean that literally uh, <laughs> since we're talking about this topic, but you know, figuratively speaking here. Um, look, uh, the 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 original reason that we went in there. Um, or at least what we were told by the Pentagon, Bush, 
you know, sort of the warmongers of the, of the, of the 2000s. Um, the neocons had this belief that we were going in there because we wanted to eradicate terrorism, right? And Afghanistan was a hotbed for terrorism. The Taliban were there, which, you know, if you coincidentally back look deep enough, we funded the Taliban. Uh, but it had gone out of control, and we were willing to admit they had gone out of control, and we were in there to sort of defeat the Taliban and get rid of terror, terrorism once and for all, and liberate the Afghan people. And look, even for me, who like knows to read between the lines, and I grew up in sort of a very politically fluid family where we talked about politics quite often, um, I understood like it wasn't all rosy when we went in there. But there was a part of me that was really hopeful because I wanted as the Afghan diaspora, we wanted the Taliban out, we wanted women to regain their rights. And remember back then, women couldn't uh, participate in government, they couldn't participate in public really in any meaningful way. Um, there are like tons of stories about how women try to get together and there's just, you know, sort of the story, the stories are abundant. So we thought, look, we understand why the US is really there, but at least, you know, people will have some rights and, and this will happen. Uh, but I think sort of, um, as, you, as we look back, we realize the real reasons why we were there. The truth is that, sure, yes, there, were te there was terrorism in Afghanistan. There were, uh, because Af Afghanistan didn't have any sort of meaningful government, no uh, way to defend itself. It was great to have a powerful military there, uh, present, sort of like get rid of these people from the capital, get rid of these people from the government, install a proper government, or at least help install a government, get a way towards democracy. Those steps were absolutely sort of like uh, in, the, in the right way. Um, but I think um, to say that we were, that we continue to stay there for those reasons is something that is um, not entirely true. It's not the full truth, right? It's partly true, but it's not the full truth. Um, you also had simultaneously, um, I mean, the Jawbreaker team that went in on the first days of you know, September 9-11, we captured practically the important people that we wanted to capture. The the first T, uh, uh, SEAL Team 6 that went in there, they got their mission done. They were in and out. They did what was supposed to happen. And after, and uh, primarily after Osama bin Laden was captured and, 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 and you know, sort of uh, taken out of commission, um, the official sort of America's mission was complete at that point, right? At that point, I think America, Afghanistan deserved to figure out how to do uh, for itself. But us continuing staying in there, and um, I want to be careful answering this because I don't know all of the sort of like military uh, pit, uh, pitfalls of what was happening in Afghanistan. And I have plenty of followers and friends who are from the armed services, and we have very open and, 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 and honest discussions. And some of these people who are good friends of have become good friends of mine um, have served in Afghanistan. In fact, I donate um, to a um, elite organization that are retired um, armed forces, particularly from Navy Team SEAL 6, as well as the Green Beret. There's an organization in New York um, that I participate in and that we donate sort of uh, donate through, through our uh, uh, company to them. And these people have become friends, close friends, especially the ones who are continuing to stay involved in the administrative side of the organization. And, you know, like, and, and some of these people have, you know, talk about stories that we've been to dinners and, you know, had steaks and scotches over the sort of experiences they've had over there um, in their service. 
Um, so I know that there were people there that really believed in the actual sort of uh, the, the public mission that was sort of stated. But I think it's naive not to talk about the resources that was taken during the same time. And it's naive to say that that's the only reason why we were there. It's naive not to sort of admit these facts and, 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 and um, admit that the majority of the $2 trillion that was spent in Afghanistan was primarily done to extract resources and was primarily spent on U.S. companies um, by way of con no-bid contracts, um, which is really a robbery of sort of taxpayers' money, right? That's the sort of like the other um, side of like, you know, if you can call this sort of like the criminal effects of, 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 of this. It's a transference of wealth. I know you and I have talked a little bit about this, about other areas, but this is really another way to rob um, the U.S. taxpayers, right? If you look at Halliburton, uh, um, uh, um, Boeing, Raytheon, look at their stock index. Look at what's happened in the last 20 years. Some of these companies, 10x, 12x, 15x in the last, you know, uh, 10, uh, 10, 20 years um, in their stock prices. Um, and some even more so, some companies that are not as public facing but are publicly listed um, have grown tremendously. Um, so it's, it's, it's not uh, incomprehensible to at least um, give notice to those factors and say those could also be a contributing factor for the way we handled operations in Afghanistan in the last 20 years. Got it. And so, you know, there are people that are saying that the people of Afghanistan didn't want our help. I, you know, just quickly, do you think that's true or false? I think that's unequivocally false to a great degree. Um, sure. Look, uh, if you had tomorrow, um, if you had a, a handmaiden's tale sort of scenario, there would be people in America all for it. And Texas today is proving it, right? You can't deny that. There would be people that would say, yeah, absolutely. A woman does belong in the kitchen, you know, and, 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 and men should be sort of like the all authority. That, those type of types of people exist. There's always going to be crackpots out there. You can't sort of like base the entire trajectory of a com uh, uh, and motivations and, and hopes of, of a country to a few people that could exist. Sure. I, am I willing to admit that it exists? Yes, but we should also admit that it exists everywhere. Right. So, yeah. So false. What What is the mo like next most important thing our listeners can do to help? Um, Something what, they could let's, do let's, like let's, today. Yeah, um, I mean, just today there was an announcement that um, California is um, expecting 5,000 Afghan refugees to arrive any day now. Um, they're going through clearances. So I think in the next like week, um, uh, refugee centers are going to be filled. I think donations of all kinds, clothing, you know, and, and it's just not clothing. It's also, you know, there's a, somebody had made a list on Amazon of the things that they were donating to their local chapters. And I was on there buying a few things and I realized, and it also like I teared up because, you know, like there's utensils and baby seats, diapers, and then all of a sudden it starts hitting like home a little bit harder than it does just surfacely, if that's a word, surfacely thinking about. Because all of a sudden you realize, oh my God, these people don't even have utensils anymore. Like they need combs, right? When they arrive, they just don't have, and then 
especially for the diaspora who's left that, I realized that was that those were my personal experiences. I like when we became refugees and we came to coincidentally, by the way, we ended up in Holland uh, for a few years. We were opened with welcome. Uh, we were welcomed with open arms and there were wonderful people. We live in a wonderful community. In fact, to this day, we're still friends with our old neighbors in the old neighborhood. We still keep up. My parents come to visit us and or in the past would come to visit family. They would go to the old, old town and, and speak to those people. Wonderful community. But I remember arriving and we were given sort of government housing because we sought asylum. My, 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 my parents got political asylum. But I remember the neighbors would come over and they would like drop off, you know, like extra blankets. I, those are things we didn't have. And, 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 and you realize going through this list because, you know, we're so used to, you know, you have a child, you run to the store and you grab yourself, you know, a, a baby seat. You all of a sudden realize these people are going to help with no resources, none whatsoever. Maybe a couple of hundred bucks that they have sort of that they have in their pocket, but that's it, you know. And now they have to start a life all over again, leaving everything they know behind. Um, so yeah, uh, to answer your question very uh, in a very long-winded way, that's where you can start, uh, especially if you're in California. But I know there's a large group that's in Washington D.C. that arrived, one in Virginia, um, and those are unfortunately those are the only states that I know about. But I know there's um, Seattle. I think is another another port that they have arrived at. Um, so if you're listening and you're in, in the uh, North America area, um, especially in the, in, in the U.S. and Canada, there's a lot of refugee centers. Um, that are currently um, receiving in sort of an onslaught of uh, immigrants coming in. And then if you can't, look, you don't, it doesn't have to be items that you, if you can't afford anything, totally understandable. The other thing you can do, they need interpreters, they need, um, they need just people to help with the application process. I mean, uh, as, as like a eight, nine-year-old, I used to fill out, you know, my parents' application for their driver's license. It would be nice to have a native-speaking grown-up helping you do that. Do you have a like an organization that you prefer or that you would recommend our listeners? Just because I I know there's a lot of, I mean these it's very skeptical out there, you know. Absolutely, you know um, my my um, my notion has always been to go with whatever the state is recommending. The state itself usually has a lot of resources to do it. Um, uh, I I will say this: if you're listening and you're in Europe, a lot of European countries, there's a lot of Afghan diaspora in Europe. A lot of these centers are no longer accepting clothing or anything because they are filled to the brim, and that's you know that's a fortunate thing. And, you know, I'm kind of proud of the the Afghan communities um, coming together so 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 fast. Um, in fact, here in Holland, um, there was a call for one day, and then the second day there was like announcements like, "Please, no more. We have enough," um, which was really powerful. Um, I personally am planning a trip to Turkey, Greece possibly Poland uh, to take uh, items because I know those countries just don't have the same resources. Um, and so uh, I'm trying to coordinate with organizations that are already there. And if they can't take it, then, you know, I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll do it myself. Uh, but, you know, uh, so, so that's like number one thing is to help. But the second thing is also knowing that, and this is where I was talking about the realism of, of what people can do, is understanding that Afghanistan is going to be like this for at least the next five years. This isn't going to change. It's certainly not going to change with our administration. Maybe the next administration that will come in will have a different take on Afghanistan, but it certainly is not going to change for the next four or five years. So I, f 
for the next four or five years, this is a marathon for all those who are Afghan allies, Afghan refugees who have made it. Um, this is a marathon for us. This is not a sprint. This is not going to end tomorrow. The, those people are going to continue getting out of Afghanistan by whatever means possible, and they'll end up in, on the shores of the Western and Eastern Europe, European borders, and they're going to need all the help. I agree. And it's so interesting because um, the media obviously portrays the Afghani people a certain way as a representative, as a representation of how all Afghani people are over there. And it, you know, as a, as a Middle Eastern, I always feel like it doesn't matter like what kind of Middle Eastern you are. I can always sense if you're Middle Eastern in general. And I've realized when I know somebody is Middle Eastern and I ask them like, oh, where are you from? They're always so hesitant to tell me that they're from Afghanistan. They're afraid that, you know, I will judge them or, you know, I just, I always have um, a lot of empathy for for Afghani people here and and Iraqi people who are from Iraq as well. Um, because they they can't be who they really are. And I mean, they're afraid, you know, where, you know, we have groups, where, you know, specialized in projecting, you know, your race or your culture. We I find these people not able to do that. Yeah. So without getting into the sort of like race dynamics in America, um, the, I, even for myself, I can attest to what you're saying. Um, and, and I agree with you because I think I did it for a very long time and I may have even done it with you or something. I think you did actually. I think, I think what I asked you, it was like, yeah, I don't remember, but I just was, you were like, um, did you say Syrian maybe, or you said something? No, 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 no. I, I always say I'm from Afghanistan, but I grew up in Europe. That's, it's almost like, like pacifying or rather sort of like, you know, um, like disassociating yourself from. It's it's exactly right from what's happening in modernity and uh, you know like like I said I'm 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 very guilty of it because I know I've done it for a very very long time I've only became conscious of it I think in the last few years um, that I make that distinction but I think a really wonderful book for people who want to understand this you know maybe they're from the Middle East or maybe they're not they just want to understand this is a wonderful book by Edward Said no relations to me. Uh, Edward Said was a uh, professor of comparative literature at Columbia University, uh, and he spoke a lot about sort of, uh, you know, uh, civil rights movements and uh, equal rights movement movements, and he coined a phrase, um, uh, Orientalism, and he looked at sort of like the historical context of why the West views people from the Middle East uh, in Asia uh, in, in, in that light, and it all stems from sort of like the the, the sort of colonialist movement uh, that was done in, in, in there. And it stems back sort of when Napoleon um, first uh, did a compendium of Egypt, uh, which was in North, uh, North Africa. Um, and from then, from, 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 from that century, and from those books and those compendium of, uh, of, of knowledge that was composed during, that, during Napoleon's uh, sort of rule in Egypt. From then, the bodies of work uh, in literature, art um, uh, that have been produced in the West have all have a common denominator that looks at people of the Middle East in a certain way. 
But meanwhile, you have people as diverse as you know people from Egypt and and uh, and, and Morocco and North, North North Africa to you know people from Iraq and and, and Iran and you know that are in the Middle East, and then you have people uh, Middle East and Asia. These are very very diverse cultures, but the only common denominator really being sort of you know being Muslim maybe, and even that's not necessarily true because there's a large portion uh, there's a large population of uh, Christians and, 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 and Jewish people that are in the Middle East. But nevertheless, these books that have been sort of like compiled, these bodies of, of, of books and what he called sort of encyclopedia of, of its first kind that was composed about Egypt, a lot of the bodies of war currently that we draw from, from even to this day, is from those images that were, that were on there. And he just goes through, again, being a professor of uh, comparative literature, he sort of goes historically, goes through artwork, that was produced in the, in, in the West and uh, poetry and 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 and, and books um, that portrays and draws from similar types of bodies of work. And today you have the sort of in modernity what Jack Sheen calls sort of real bad Arabs that are being portrayed. But nevertheless, I think it's one of the reasons why you know it it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy where with through hegemonic discourse today, right? You have people like me who grew up in the West who say, yeah, I'm from Afghanistan, but I grew up in the West. You know, I'm not like those people, but the reality is I am from Afghanistan. And, uh, yeah, so, but that's, you know, that's not, has not, there's, there's a whole component of race dynamics in America that I don't think we want to get into today. We should start like a hug an Afghan campaign. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, Find an Afghan also. and hug one. I mean, if you're here, I to- I totally do it. I mean, shoot, I, you know, when I, I I reached out to you, it's like you posted that that thing that what I, on Instagram that a bunch of kids were like flying into LAX and asking people to take them in. I was like, well, count me. I was like, where the hell did that post go? I really, I yeah. I in no, without hesitation. I mean, of course, way, I, I, I of course, say. I was like, be worried because I'm like, okay, some freaks are gonna go pick up some of those kids, right? And so, but I was, but I'm not. Well, depends on who you ask. I, I you know, I, I will say this for your audience: you were um, one of the first people that reached out to me to ask me if I was okay, and I appreciate that, and um, that meant a lot to me and, and my wife in, in those moments because it was very, very difficult. And, you know, I was in my own feelings for a very long time, and um, you know, I. I uh, it's very difficult to operate under those sort of like circumstances when, 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 when you see things like that on TV and especially if you have a lot of empathy and, you know, um, if you sort of like, you know, get, see those things and, and realize that the world is a fucked up place in some extent. Oh, can I cuss here? Uh, uh, to some extent. It's me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So when you realize that the world's a fucked up place, it's very difficult to, you know, sort of extrapolate and, and, and not be emotional about it. So, but I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, I could tell you're in pain, right? Even from your social media posts, I could tell your wife was in pain and I didn't know how to, you know, you were so far away. It's not like I could call you and say, hey, let's go get a drink or, um, and, and maybe that's what our, audi- our audience members could do is, or they could reach out to someone that they know that is, um, you know, from Afghanistan or has family there and just simply ask them, are you okay? How can I help? What, you know, and... And, and, and that is just yeah. like a very simple first step. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, if your audience members are going to do that, I, I will, I should preface this. The Afghan people and themselves aren't very, um, uh, we're very community driven, but 
we don't all believe in the same things, right? Just like any other sort of nation in any way, right? There, there's conservative members within our community. Again, both religious conservatism, but also cultural conservatism, which are two different things. And, you know, like not every, not every Afghan is the same way in that sense. You can talk to, you know, there, there are people um, that uh, we're friends with you know, whose parents didn't believe in the revolution and they believe that people like my parents were the real cause of everything that happened because they're the ones who invited the Russians over and they're the ones who really wanted to push out the um, sort of like Muslims of Afghanistan or they're religious, right? They really wanted secularism and they really weren't for it. But the truth is that sort of battle is happening today in America. America still is a very Puritan nation and they're, it's still trying to hold on to its um, sort of religious ideals and they believe that the... Uh, you know, West Coast liberals are deteriorating the fabric of, of, of American society and our religious communities are being sort of like torn apart. Those same arguments were had in Afghanistan, right? So, you know, learn to distinguish when you do meet somebody who has who is informed by those sort of political and philosophical narratives, and that's fine. But the truth is, like, ultimately, ultimately, here's, here's the sort of like crux of it all. Ultimately, there is a sovereign nation that was, you know, as my as my as my father-in-law likes to say by their own doing and this is not my opinion but again afghans have their own opinions um have fallen trapped to the sort of bigger powers that that have a play and they're there for whether it's using afghanistan as a buffer zone uh, which is a military term um or or using it for its resources but you have this nation that cannot practice its own its own manifest destiny you have children who are sort of, you know, affected by it. So Afghanistan has gone through 45 years of perpetual war. You have children who haven't even entered the stage of PTSD because they're constantly in war. So mm -hmm. PTSD doesn't exist because they haven't been out of war. Um, you know, Afghanistan currently, I think 51% of Afghanistan is under the age of 17. Um, uh, whatever brain power that was in Afghanistan and had accumulated in the last 20 years with America, again, quote unquote, liberating it. Uh, all those people are fleeing because they're the ones with the resources. They're the ones with the education. They're the ones who speak English. So they're the first ones to leave, just like my parents did in the 80s. So again, you have the second, uh, second coming of a major brain drain in Afghanistan. So who's going to be left? Who's, who's going to be left to the vices of of the uneducated hired goons to come in there and impose their own um, rules and regulations. In fact, there was somebody that was on national TV. I couldn't even watch it because he was saying things like women shouldn't wear heels because when you wear heels, then you make sounds which will attract men. Uh, women should not smell good, so no perfume because then you're calling it uh, an attraction to yourself. This is an absolute assault on uh, not just like on the Afghan women, of course the Afghan women, but just on humanity in itself, you know. You're subjugating an entire population, you're an entire sect. And uh, yeah, I, 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 I can't imagine uh, what the LBGTQ community is going through in Afghanistan to, uh, at, at this moment. Um, and not that, you know, those countries were welcoming in any meaningful way before, but now certainly is not... I mean, now they're just probably being executed on site. Um, you have, you know, women have no rights. Um, I mean, we all remember, uh, vividly remember, and if you don't, you should, don't look it up, but if you're too young, but um, 
we all remember the 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 woman who was being executed on the soccer field pre you know 9/11 pre pre our first invasion of Afghanistan so those days are going to return in fact in some ways they already are there's videos out there that are just absolutely horrific to stare at and so yeah i think i think this is a marathon i think the afghan people unfortunately are in for another you know uh another possibly decade of of absolute horrid horrid um conditions i mean don't tempt me cuz if you were like Katrina, I'm booking a flight. Let's go use our our genius, which I'm self-proclaiming, um, to go. You know, fix this place. I'll go. I, you know, community is one of is one of my core values, and it's pretty high up there, I would say. And I've always had this feeling of when you know other people's freedoms are. It was, it's an MLK um, quote, but it's you know if other people's freedoms are being compromised, um, it's a threat to our freedom. And I've always believed that. And so, you know, if anyone who's listening, if community is one of your values and you're all about it, if, if you're not paying attention to what's happening, um, if your behavior, your actions aren't reflecting that, I would, I would go back and, and, and maybe rethink what your values are because if community is one of them, then you should at least care about what's going on. I'm not saying with all of the problem, uh, with everything that's happening all over the world, I, I think it could feel very uh, overwhelming um, to to think that you can um, contribute to every single thing that's happening. But but you have to contribute to something. Is my point. And and speaking of values, um, you know, can lighten up the conversation a little bit. Our last conversation. I got I, I got some single listeners out there. I I've got I've got listeners who are maybe in relationships that they're questioning or they're not sure. It just doesn't feel right, and maybe they're not able to identify why it doesn't. Well, that was a heavy pour. That sounds so nice. Oh, <laughs> are you gonna finish Let's the bottle on the show? <laughs> no, no. I mean, I'm three quarter, uh, uh, two quarter, uh, one quarter of the way down. Um, it's like nine eleven here, girl. Yeah. It's on Thursday, nine eleven. Um, yeah, pretty. That's right. It's Thursday. Late date um, yes. uh, you know, so I I felt like our we were like having lunch, and I was explaining to you what I was feeling. There really wasn't like an egregious reason for me to be, to to pinpoint exactly why I was having this like torment of the soul um, in my circumstances at that time, and so I would love it. Um, if you could share what you shared with me during that lunch and it, and just to kind of help facilitate you, it was, you were saying that there's like the, there's like primary, yeah, primary values. And then the secondary ones that kind of keep you there, even though you probably feel like you shouldn't be there. So can you just share that with my peoples? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So I, I will get into it, but I want to preface two things real quick. So, um, my wife, who's a marriage and family therapist and with two masters and, you know, this is what she does on a daily basis. She practices and, you know, she's, she's a clinician. She told me that I missed my calling. That's, I really should have gone into psychiatry or psychology because she says I have a knack for this, but obviously, yeah, way too late. So I want to preface this to your audience. Uh, and then the second thing I want to preface is we talked about um, two different sort of like things that you should that you should do. One is sort of identifying your current, your behavior, which is 
what you're referring to right now that we're going to talk about. And the second thing is what you should do once you find that right person immediately, especially if you're somebody who's like serious about relationships. But I think the two sort of like things that we, uh, or the, the, the thing that we talked about uh, that you're referring to is uh, we all have a list that we sort of like have in our brain about the partner uh, that we want to have, the list of characteristics that they should have, you know, things like, you know, must not smoke, whatever that is. It's different for everybody. I'm just going to rattle off a few things. You know, must be educated, must not smoke, must not drink, or must be X, you know, X feet tall and do this and do that, right? Like we all have You can't be a racist. I remember you specifically (laughs) saying that one. Yeah, you can't be be a racist. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then you have, you have this uh, secondary list that you're not aware of, right? These are things that like, you're like, oh, absolutely not. You know, somebody who's got like bad breath, for instance, or somebody who's like, you know, under four, nine, whatever that <laughs> list is, like must not have children, whatever that is. I don't, I don't know what that is, right? It's, it's it varies for everybody. You went we so all low on the trigger high. list. <laughs> four, nine. <laughs> Are you trying to protect some people out there? <laughs> yeah, I totally am. It's including like, myself. It's like totally five, six. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as somebody who's who's officially five nine, yes. <laughs> um, but we all have this like other list, right? Like which we say, and it's always internalized because it's too obvious to mention to people. You know, must not be a murderer, must not have never gone to jail, whatever it is, right? We all have these like must not. I will never date somebody like that. And then we meet people, whether it's like, you know, sort of attraction, lust, you know, whatever it is. For whatever reason, we meet people. And then most of these people, and this is the reason why the relationships don't work out, they don't meet that criteria of must-have list, right? They're not like the, the, the kind of person they thought, you know, somebody who was going to be like empathetic or maybe somebody who like had a good relationship with their mother or like whatever that is, right? Like these things that were important to you, they kind of fall, sh- this person doesn't meet that. But what this person also doesn't meet is this must not have list, right? This person is, didn't never went to jail. This person, like, you know, uh, doesn't have a, a sort of an abusive behavioral behavior characteristics. Uh, this person doesn't smoke. This person doesn't, you know, do drugs. Whatever that other thing is, then you settle for that because you're like, well, at least it doesn't have that, and you do this subconsciously, in my opinion. By the way, these are all opinions. So you do this subconsciously, right? Um, and then you realize, like, you know six months, a year, two years into a relationship, like I'm not really happy and I don't know why and I don't want to be in this relationship. And you break up and then you meet somebody else and then, you know, the first couple of months is like cloud nine, you're in love, like, you know, the, all the butterflies are there. So you're kind of hazy, you're not paying attention. And then the same thing happens. And then you realize after the second, third, maybe fourth sort of failed relationship, you're like, oh man, like I'm just not meant to find the right person or I, that's not for me. Maybe true love doesn't exist, but the truth is that we have these two lists. One is very, very conscious and one is very, very subconscious. And what we do is we find somebody that fulfills neither or, and then we settle for that. So it doesn't fill this other good thing, but it doesn't fill out all the bad things. So it can't be that bad, right? So you sort of like, then you get into relationships and you fall into the traps of like, oh, maybe I can change it. Maybe I can get him to get him or her to be motivated. Maybe I can get him or her to, or they to be more X, Y, and Z, whatever that ends up happening at that point, that's what you end up doing. And then you soon realize like, hey, um, I need to make a decision about whether or not this is going to be a long-term thing or not, because I'm not getting any younger. They're not getting any younger. And if you're like in a committed 
you know, faithful relationship. It's also a question of, you know, am I doing right by this person by not, you know, moving forward with, you know, with so whatever the next step is for our relationship. Yeah. No, but there, there are very, there were like five key things that you broke down for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. it was like finances. So once, so once you meet that person, right? Once you meet that person, I think there is, especially if you're somebody who's serious about a relationship and age doesn't matter, but if you're serious about a relationship, if you're serious about a relationship, there's five things that you immediately talk about. Talk about children, who wants to have how many and who has how many from where. Everybody has to be honest. You can't be in a relationship with somebody who doesn't want any children. And like six years down the line, you're like, oh man, I really want to be with somebody who wants to have children. And that person's like, well, I told you from day one I didn't want any. Mm-hmm. That's number one. We actually have friends like that. They've been in a relationship for six years. And he always, dinners turn very awkward because he tells her, Hey, I told you I didn't want children from the, I've never swayed from this. Yeah, right? she thought she would change him. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Second is you talk about um, uh, uh, family, right? You meet each other. There's no reason for you guys not to introduce, if, especially if you're involved with your family, you want to see how that dynamic goes. That person marries your family, you marry that person's family. Even if it just ends up being like, a non-marriage, long-term committed relationship, you still want to introduce those people because you want to see how they interact with each other. Third thing is you want them to interact with your friends because if if there's a couple of trigger warnings, right? If that person has no friends, that's a trigger warning in my opinion, right? Like who doesn't have friends by the time they get to 20, 30 years old? That's a a red flag in my book. Um, The fourth thing is talking about finances. This is very, very important. You know, like when you're in the beginning of the relationship, maybe one person is paying for everything, the other person is paying for something else, or maybe you guys are splitting everything. It's very important to find out, especially if you're going to get committed and especially if you're going to move in, and especially if you're thinking about marriage, about who has what income, but more importantly, who has what debt. Because that is, when you marry somebody, that debt becomes yours. And so it's very important to talk about, you know, finances, you know, this is not about domineering. This is not about who wears the pants or uh, this is not about flexing. This is simply about being adults and talking about, hey, look, when I met Tara, I was very honest with her. I told her, like, look, these are my goals and aspirations, but this is like, I put myself in debt to get my company going. I want to be, you don't have to do this. You can wait until I get out of it. And I honestly, I didn't have a plan for getting out of it. I didn't know how I was going to get out of it, but she was like, I don't care. She was a ride or die. She was like, I don't care. I get it. It's my girl. She goes, you're an entrepreneur. Yeah. Um, and then the uh, uh, children, finances, family. Religion, friends. housing. Religion. Religion. You talk about religion. This is really important. You know what the funny thing is? That I didn't think this was very important because I grew up in a secular household, obviously by me drinking uh, wine. <laughs> I grew up in a secular household. Um but I, I know friends, close friends, um, who've ended relationships over, over over religion. In fact, I ended a relationship in college over over religion. Um, if somebody is devout or somebody is not devout or somebody is of a particular religion and somebody is not of a particular religion and they don't want to convert or no one wants to convert or no one wants to practice or no one wants to stop practicing, these things need to be discussed almost immediately. Because if you really find religion something that is, you know, spiritually sort of fulfilling for you, and somebody else doesn't, that can be a red flag. Um, 
or if the particular religion you're practicing, somebody doesn't want to practice, or they want to practice it the way you want to practice it, um, that could be a source of problem. I know people, I know people, um, um, let me rephrase. Uh, I had an employee who was getting married. They went through, uh, they belonged to a Catholic church. I'm not breaking any rules. Nobody knows who this person is. But they were getting married in the Catholic church. The Catholic church had a one weekend seminar for them and they had to go to it. Coincidentally, they were, these are the five things they talked about. She told me that there were people who broke up after that. And one of the couples who broke up was the way they were going to practice religion. Now, remember, they were both of the same religion. They mm -hmm. went to the same church. But the way they were going to practice it was something that they didn't agree on. And they just realized this is not for us. So even to the degree at which you're going to practice, to the degree of how many children you want to have, to the degree of how much debt or how much aspirations you have, there are people who both are... Uh, they, they, they match all these things, but maybe they don't have all the same aspirations and, and, and sort of like uh, attainment goals, right? Like one person, they, they both have good jobs, but some one person just wants to stay in middle management or one person just wants to stay at the level that they're at. The other person is dreaming of caviar wishes and champagne dreams, right? And those super people are never going to work out. <laughs> so... So there you have it. Yeah, I mean, I heard it, and then, and then I was like eager to <laughs> to try it out, and then <laughs> and then the pandemic hit. Um, you are you are throwing me out of the bus and here. So, and so, so you know, um, this year I was like, I just, I mean, it like it was like seared into my heart uh, that conversation and so this year i was like i mean i probably i sent my my credit report within like the week probably just to you know i i just wanted out there i wanted to know I, I mean and to be honest i was very comfortable um because i knew he was honest and i trusted him and so we just before i knew it i think i had thought about what you had told me and after like two weeks i realized man we really covered like everything at this point and we were and did you did you have a talk with him did you say hey like i want to discuss these things or did you just kind of like they just came up naturally in conversation okay to be honest yeah. um there wasn't okay. uh, but i it may sound like it was unintentional but i i think subconsciously it was very intentional for me based off of our conversation sure. and my experience um in the past yeah. you know in certain situations so so hopefully everybody got uh, pen and paper out and they wrote these things down as topics to cover. I mean, you don't have to do this on like date one. Um, but, no. but maybe like within the first 30 days I would have these conversations. Um, and because what you don't want to do is, as Omar said, is you don't want to be six months into it and then you are having these conversations and then you realize you're not on the same page, but you've invested so much time. And so you think, it's going to change. And I mean, I can, I can tell you with full confidence, it doesn't change. Um, they may try to manage it because they want to make you happy, but it all will come out as like vomit at some point and resentment. So I love that we lighten I mean, this I, up a I, bit. I, I, I love it too. If I can use a personal example real quick, I have uh, my sister-in-law who's a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful girl, just absolutely wonderful girl. Um, and she's like having a really difficult time finding somebody. And I had this conversation with her. I think what's very difficult where people conceptualize these five concepts of must talk about topics, right? They conceptualize it and make sense to them, but they wait, they hold on to this conversation to have it with the right person, but they can never find that right person. And I think that's where that first sort of practice comes in where you 
outwardly admit the things that you must have before you commit to a relationship versus the things that you're just settling for. If you're really honest with yourself, you can identify that in the first couple of dates. In fact, you know, for most people, maybe even within the first date or so, you can just literally be sitting there and be like, oh, this person is not really ambitious and ambition is very important to me. So I don't think so. Or this person doesn't never wants to travel and I'm all about traveling. This is never going to work out. Same, man. I'm getting platinum status for Delta this year. Super excited. Are you? Yeah. Awesome. And, and there's still, I, yeah. there's still a, a Paris trip coming up. In November, mm. and then we're we're entertaining New Year's in Spain. So, okay. So listen, I just spent some time in, in Marbella. I really enjoyed it. I love Spain. Spain and Portugal, one of two of my favorite countries. Absolutely. Um, you can take this offline, by the way, if you want to wrap this. But I want to finish a thought for you. Uh, when you come in November, you have to come. You just take a train ride here. Okay. It's not that far. Like we're we're coming Literally fully loaded. Paris. I mean, we've got like four smalls. Um. Fine. You can just stay. I'll I'll give you the entire upstairs, and you guys can have your own bathroom. Yay! I I love sharing a bathroom with five other people. Whatever. It's a it's a free place to stay. Um. Oh no! I was I was um. I remember uh, like there was a very brief conversation I was having with someone who I maybe entertained like dating them. And I just remember like they were talking about how passionate they were about this thing, and I was like, well, you should go for it. And and they were like, I'll just wait for the opportunity to come. I was like, this is not going to work. <laughs> like, I, like, keep waiting, honey, because yeah. it ain't coming. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I, and I will say this is also true for, like, even business partners. When you meet business partners, which I, I've always argued publicly that I think is worse to get into than, like, a marriage partnership or, like, a relationship partnership. Hello, I had a buyout yeah. in, like, year one. <laughs> yeah, I, I will say you practice similar things, you know, like maybe not children, you know, right. but similar principles. Well, sure. there's parenting, right? I mean, like managing staff. I'm not saying it's like That's parenting, but right. like yeah. kind of, you know. Yeah. But No, it is. I mean, if somebody doesn't want to have any children and they like don't want to partner up with somebody who wants to have children. Right. Sure. Right. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for, for giving me your time. How does the wine taste now that it's opened up or are you kind of too far in there? I... Thank you.